Hag Sameach Purim, everyone. Welcome to the Aliyah Day. It is a joy, a blessing, a great privilege to be with all of you. It is a uh, wonderful morning, a wonderful morning of Purim. We had a amazing Megillah reading last night. It was <laughs> an incredible amount of fun. I see that many of you have uh, commented on it so far, so... Uh, Baruch Hashem, it's a, it's a blessing to have had all of you with us and so many uh, watching uh, from across the Fruited Plain. It's a great joy uh, to, to be able to do that, Baruch Hashem. So, it's still the holiday of Purim. It's exciting. We're glad you're here. Uh, already making plans for next year's uh, Purim and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And so, um, kind of have to kind of hate to take my costume back. I was kind of liking it. I kind of I asked the guys last night, is it, is it wrong that I want to wear this all the time? Uh, but anyway, I guess I guess I have to, Baruch Hashem. So anyway, welcome Shem. Watching from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Glad you are here, Shem. Welcome. Marie, welcome. Carol, welcome. Dominique from Kansas City, welcome. Joy, I am glad that you are here. Stephanie from... Uh, uh, California, welcome, Patricia. Want to give a shout out to uh, Charlie and Max and William and uh, Ruby and Penny, who apparently like to watch the program here and listen to me uh, speak about the, the Torah portion. So that's exciting. So welcome, you guys. Glad you're here. Thank you so much for joining uh, me this morning. Gabrielle from uh, Germany, glad you're here. Elizabeth, glad you're here. All these precious souls. Rachel is online this morning. She's listening as she's making her way back to Tulsa. <laughs> but that's all right. She'll uh, she'll be back. She'll be back soon. Brukashim Hadas, uh, Colin from uh, Odessa area. Glad you're here, Jenea. Look at all these precious souls. It's wonderful. Devora representing Shreveport. Brukashim. Glad you're here. Anita Detello. Was it wonderful to have the Detello family with us? Precious, precious people from the Kansas area. So glad that they were able to come and be a part of all the fantastic uh, goings-on. And uh, people from South Africa, look at all these souls. Anyway, glad you're here. Wow. Last night was amazing. Uh, recovering a little bit from all the festivities. We're looking here at the third Aliyah of Ki uh, Tisa. By the way, um, we're a month away from Pesach. So we start the road to Pesach. Now is the time to start thinking about um, dwindling down the hamets, getting rid of the 50-pound 50, 50 bag of, uh, of a pancake mix that you might have and think about getting, uh, you know, using up all of the products that are not kosher for Passover. And this week, Bezrat Hashem, I will start to uh, put together... Uh, uh, information and, and put that out there for people. They can start, you know, realizing what you need to keep, what you need to get rid of, what you need to think about getting, all those kinds of things. So we'll work on that this week. Brukashen. All right. So we left off yesterday um, with part of the second Aliyah not having been read. And I believe where we ended was, um, let's see, I think we're over here in chapter 32. And uh, 
Let me just make sure. I think we're in chapter 32 and verse 11. I believe that's where we left off. I'm going to start there anyway. I don't really remember. It's all a blur since last night. Um, but we're going to start here, uh, finishing up the rest of the second Aliyah, and then moving into the third Aliyah, and then we'll get to some commentary. So if you have your art scroll, homage, we are going to be on Cuatrocientos, Pagina, Cuatrocientos Siete. Uh, that's 497 for you Ashkenazi Jews out there. And we'll begin reading shortly. As in now. It says here, Moses pleaded before Adonai, his God, and said, because God is talking about the people dancing around the golden calf, he's going to annihilate them, he's going to destroy them, and he's going to make Moses into a great nation. Moses pleaded before Adonai, his God, and said, Why, Adonai, should your anger flare up against your people, whom you have taken out of the land of Mitzrayim, with great power and a strong hand, why should Egypt say the following? With evil intent did he take them out to kill them in the mountains and annihilate them from the face of the earth. Relent from your flaring anger and reconsider regarding the evil against your people. Remember, for the sake of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and told them, I shall increase your offspring like the stars of the heaven. And this entire land which I spoke, I shall give your offspring and it shall be their inheritance forever. Now Adonai reconsidered regarding the evil he had declared and he would that he would do to his people. In other words, Moses, excuse me, Hashem tore up the evil decree because uh, Moses had prayed, because the righteous man had interceded for the people, and as a result, the evil decree was, was torn up. Moses turned and descended from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets inscribed on both their sides, and they were there were inscribed on one side on the other. The tablets were God's handiwork. The script was a script of God engraved on the tablets. Now that, that verse right there, the word engraved is harut. 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 It's with a hate. Harut. you got to get the little guttural sign, sound there. Um, however, as many people know, in the Torah scroll, there aren't any vowel markers. So the word could be pronounced harut. But it also could be pronounced Herut. What's the difference? Well, interestingly enough, Harut means uh, inscribed or engraved, but Herut means freedom. Isn't that remarkable? Um, it's spelled the exact same way, just pronounced with one slightly different vowel, vowel uh, um, uh, point. And so it's saying here that this is the word of God, this is the script, was the script of God engraved on the tablets, but we could read freedom on the tablets. This is why the apostle Yaakov, James, wrote in his letter that we should keep the, the perfect law that brings freedom. So this teaches us something that is quite the contrary of what most people's theological doctrine is. Most people believe doctrinally that that Judaism's uh, laws, that the laws of the Torah and so on, are actually um, burdensome and binding, and that we, we need grace in order to, to bring freedom. Because, I mean, after all, who the sun sets free is free indeed, right? Well, actually, wrong. Um, because the sun, that is the king of Israel, that is Mashiach, is actually the Torah man manifest. So he does, in fact, bring freedom. Why? Because the Torah is freedom. 
So it says here that this is freedom on the tablet. So always remember that. Always remember that true freedom is um, is is God's holy word. Joshua heard the sound of the people. By the way, I want to say that if, if you, for some reason, uh, did not get a chance to hear the drosh on Shabbat, um, probably that message is in the top five of the most important droshes you'll ever hear in your life. And so I want to encourage you to go back uh, and listen to it. I think it's on our Sar Shalom Synagogue YouTube page. I know it's on the uh, live stream page. But anyway, you need to listen to that drosh because I, I, I address... Uh, well, a number of important things on there, but but this kind of concept is addressed as well. But anyway, I digress. Joshua heard the sound of the people and its shouting, and he said to Moses, the sound of battle is in the camp. He said, not a sound of shouting strength, nor a sound of shouting weakness, a sound of distress do I hear. That's remarkable, because they're, everybody's uh, celebrating in revelry. And yet, to Moses, it sounds like distress, like they're in trouble. So it happened as he drew near to the camp and saw the calf and the dances that Moses' anger flared up. He drew down the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned the fire. He ground it to a fine powder and sprinkled it over the water. He made the children of Israel drink. Now, these are the divine tablets. These are tablets that were literally... uh, hewn out of the th- the the base of the throne of, of Hashem, made out of divine sapphire. What happened was, is, is uh, as Moses was bringing the Torah down, so the law had not yet come, key point, the law had not yet come, and we were already dancing around the golden calf. So it wasn't the law that caused us to make the, to, to die, it wasn't the law that caused us to dance around the calf. It was actually our own sinful nature. Now, a couple of things here. Moses, in breaking the tablets, one could look at this on the surface and say, well, he was angry. That's that's true, he was angry. But really, breaking the tablets was and is considered by the sages as an act of grace because had the law actually been brought into the people's presence, then the only recourse for them would have been death. But because Moses broke the tablets, he he basically was bringing a grace to the people because the law of death would not uh, apply to them, or the ruling of death would not apply to them. Um, this is a, 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 um, there's an analogy or, or a parable in the Midrash about this, and I'm just going to kind of briefly paraphrase, but basically it says that the, uh, a, a king was going to marry a, a, a lady, and then she was found to be unfaithful, so what did the servant do? He tore up the ketubah before that he could present it to the woman so that he could tell the king, listen, you can't uh, kill her or do anything bad to her because she hasn't yet received the ketubah, so there's really not a contract there. So the breaking of the divine tablets... They were actually broken to prevent us from enduring death. Sound familiar? Yeah, Yeshua was the tablets brought down from heaven and he was broken for us. Number two, what caused Moses to, to throw down or to drop the tablets? Well, you can understand these are made out of sapphire. 
Um, Moses is a pretty old guy here. Um, he had let his gym membership expire a long time ago when he left the palace. And so uh, how was he able to hold these uh, relatively large sapphire uh, tablets? And the answer is because the letters on them, the words of, 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 of God's law were, number one, floating, literally floating in the middle of, uh, of, of the stone. But they were actually light as a, fe- as a, as a feather. Light as a feather. However, when the people were uh, found to be sinning, the letters of God's word uh, ascended to Shemayim and left, left the sapphire. The moment at which the Torah left, the words of Torah left the sapphire, they, become, they became so heavy that Moses was not able to hold them. So therefore, he cast them down. They, he dropped them. They, scattered, they, they shattered into uh, you know, hundreds of pieces. Now, what does this teach us spiritually? It teaches us that when we sin, the law becomes a heavy burden to us. But when we're walking in righteousness, it's light as a feather. It also says, uh, it gives an analogy in other Midrashim that that the, the tablets, the body of the tablets were broken, but the letters, which were like the soul, actually ascended to Shemayim. Does that sound familiar? Uh, in fact, it does. Messiah's body was broken, yet he was resurrected, and he ascended to Shemayim. The only difference is, is that in this situation, the broken tablets were placed into the ark, and Moses, or excuse me, Yeshua took those broken tablets, his own body, and resurrected them. And the entire package, the entire sapphire stone, if you will, uh, ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives. What did Moses do with the broken tablets? I know I'm, I'm, I'm not done reading yet, but I just want to show a couple of things here. A couple more things. Um, what did Moses do with the broken tablets? Well, interestingly, he made himself as it were, an ark. It's not really for himself. It wasn't like a private ark, but he did make an ark. Now, the sages point out, there was the, the golden ark, the ark of the testimonial tablets that was uh, in the tabernacle and so on. And those in that ark in the wilderness was placed, um, later we're going to read about, the renewed tablets, the tablets that were made this time out of natural stone, and uh, God wrote on them, although some people say that Moses wrote on them. So they were definitely at a lower level than the sapphire tablets. And he put those tablets in the golden ark. This other ark, he put the broken tablets. Now the scripture tells us, the Torah tells us, that when the people of Israel set out on their wilderness journeys, that the ark went before them a three days journey in order to kind of find where they were going to go. The Midrash brings down that the the ark did some other supernatural things that we'll talk about in a second. At the same time, the Torah says that the ark was in the middle of the camp and Judah went out first and there was a, the legions that went out before and it was kind of in the middle. So the question is, was it going out three days ahead or was it in the middle? And the answer is kind of yes, because there were actually two arks, you know, like the two Mashiachs. 
So the first ark that Moses has made, he put the broken tablets in there, and that ark went out three days' journey. And what it was able to do supernaturally was literally to make the low places raise up and be level and make the high places come down and be level. And it drove away scorpions and serpents and so on. So the broken tablets made straight paths for the people and drove away serpents and scorpions and other uh, dangers of the wilderness. Whereas the camp was following those broken tablets with the renewed covenant in their midst. That is the spiritual picture. All of this coming from the Midrash, the Talmud, and various other commentators and sources. It's all well-known facts. So, so what it happened... That he shattered it, okay, and then he took the calf, uh, burned in the fire, ground a fine powder, sprinkled over the water, and made the children of Israel drink. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you brought a grievous sin upon it? Okay, and it says, Aaron said, Let not my master's anger flare up. You know that the people is disposed towards evil. They said to me, Make us a God that will go before us. For this man Moses, who brought us up from the land of Mitzrayim, we do not know what became of him. So I said to them, Who has gold? And they removed it and gave it to me. I threw it into the fire, and this calf emerged. Now, if you are um, reading this, it seems as if uh, Aaron is just trying to make some type of silly uh, schoolboy sandbox excuse for his bad behavior. I don't know what happened. He just gave me the gold, I threw it in the fire, and this calf came out. And uh, I had nothing to do with it. Well, it's not exactly a lie, because that's in fact what happened. That they he threw the gold into the fire, and out came the calf. Not just a calf, but according to the Midrash Rabbah, a calf that was animated. In other words, it was moving. Uh, which was further prepared the people to say, oh, look, we did a good thing. This is why you, you cannot go by signs and wonders alone. People say, well, you know, I, 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 I can see where, where this uh, faith or whatever, you know, is, is anti-Torah or this practice is anti-Torah or this, this festival I'm celebrating, which is totally pagan, is anti-Torah, but I get such good things from it. The calf is moving. It's like, well... Just because there's signs and wonders and good feelings and goosebumps and kind of warm, huggy things doesn't make it right. It can only, signs and wonders are only make a difference if they conform to the Word of God. If they don't, then they're, as, as the Word of God tells us in Deuteronomy 13, they're actually tests from Hashem to see if we're going to go after our own ways or not. And we have to resist with our whole might going after our own ways that we know are contrary to Torah. It's very, very, very difficult to do that. Very challenging. Uh, but that's what we have to do. So anyway, the fact of the matter is, is that Moses, when he threw gold in the fire, out came a menorah. When they threw gold in the fire, out came a calf. So whether you get a menorah or a calf, depends on what where your heart is in Hashem. That's, that's kind of the spiritual picture being painted for us here. 
So continuing on, it says, Moses saw the people that it was exposed, for, uh, for Aaron had exposed them to disgrace among those who rise up against them. Now, we, we, we talk, I shared with, from the opening comments of the, of the Keho Tumash about the golden calf and why the golden calf incident happened, why it was, in fact, necessary uh, for this to happen, to actually bring us closer to Hashem. What's remarkable about this story, amongst other things, is that Aaron is playing a significant role in this entire event. Incidentally, we're still in the second Aliyah. The first and second Aliyah uh, of this Torah portion are exceedingly long, and so uh, we're probably going to get to the third Aliyah tomorrow, to be quite frank. But anyway, Aaron has a really uh, significant role in this entire affair, I mean, really, uh, it, even though, yes, he threw the gold in there and the calf came out, that doesn't take away from the fact that he participated in this. And, and it seemingly, if you, a surface reading, a shot level, he kind of, yes, the people are kind of pushing him into it, but okay, he acquiesced, okay, he starts giving plans, here's what we should do. Now, other commentators have said, well, Aaron was just trying to delay, he was trying to stall, he was trying to, uh, he, you know, they killed her. And he didn't. He didn't want to lose his life. Okay, you know, life before law. All those kind of things. That's that's. All, those are all possibilities. But the fact remains, he's in, he's 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 in it. He's thick in it. He's guilty. That's just no matter no matter what what excuses you want to give. I'm I'm just not somebody. I I don't like making excuses for myself. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's helpful. Um, maybe it goes back to training I had when I was younger. But I just don't like excuse making. I don't. I, I I take a line, if you will, from the King King David. King Saul made excuses, and look what happened to him. King David, when he was confronted from with his sin, made no excuses. He said, "Yeah, I'm totally, totally guilty. I'm a total Rasha. I totally deserve to die." And because he was not offering excuses, David is is uh, obviously. Uh, and deeply admired, and we refer to Mashiach as Mashiach ben David. In fact, this was really that whole topic was the topic of my my class Monday uh, Monday afternoon uh, downtown in in the uh, in the county jail to the guys was that exact illustration of how do we make true teshuva and uh, the fallacy of excuse making. So he so so Aaron is guilty, and yet. Yet he's thought, he Hashem allows him to, to continue being the high priest. Isn't that remarkable? Well, it is. But when you understand, because Aaron participated in the golden calf, listen, Aaron is going to be the high priest. He's going to be serving the God who's above all gods in the tabernacle. And one of his main missions in life is to proclaim that there is no one but Hashem. He's the only God, and 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 he uh, he Aaron is supposed to be the poster child for anti idolatry. Okay. And yet the guy who's going to don the vestments and stand in the tabernacle and be the anti idolatry poster child, poster boy is the guy who made the idol, whether he threw the 
gold in and it came out or whatever. He actually had the gold in his hand and he threw it in. So whether whether he, he had a part to play in it as far as making it, he's the guy that made the idol that caused the golden calf incident. And yet he's the guy who is now the high priest in the tabernacle proclaiming the one God against idolatry. It's the grace of Hashem. It's the grace and the tender mercy of Hashem. And if you look at every single hero in the Bible, maybe there's somebody that somebody could give me an illustration, aside from Mashiach, obviously. I'm talking about human beings here. They did not have some type of catastrophic failure in their life that almost seemed to propel them to a position of spiritual greatness. That's the great paradox. That's the whole great paradox that is discussed in the opening of Kitisa. It's just um, very, very special. Hashem is just, there's somebody, I think it was Menashe, who said on the comments, um, maybe it was yesterday, that there was no one like Hashem. There's no God like our God. Now, uh, before I continue reading, I do want to share another insight here. Because I've often said that there is uh, there's an idea in Judaism that the Messiah is just a human being. And so one of the things from the anti-missionaries um, against the Messiah, Yeshua, the only true Messiah of Israel, is that... Um, you know, he, he's, he can't be divine. He's just the Messiah. All Jews know that he's, he's just going to be a man. Well, I just want to say first and foremost that uh, the idea that all Jews agree that the Messiah is going to be a man, that's only been true in relative modern times. Um, there, is, there are sources to indicate that uh, a lot of uh, Rambam's contemporaries, for instance, did not agree that the Mashiach was going to be just a, a human being. But there is, an, there is an insight here. I'm just trying to find it. I have lots of little sticky notes. I'm trying to figure out where this is. I just saw this. Um, about Mashiach, or excuse me, about Moses. Um, oh, here it is. So, just as, I, I've, I've made this point before, but I want to reiterate it here, that if we are, if Messiah is just going to be a human being, which, by the way, Let's just face the facts. That would be pretty much impossible. Everything that the Mashiach's got to do, not to mention the fact that the Midrash says that the spirit that hovered over the waters in the very beginning, the scripture says was the spirit of God, right? And the sages say, yeah, and it was also the spirit of King Messiah. So, wait a minute. King Messiah, a mere human being, was hovering over the waters of the deep before there was creation. Okay. So it says here, speaking with him, you, everybody would agree that probably the greatest human being to ever walk the earth in terms of spiritual experience and spiritual power, probably the greatest human being, human being now, I'm talking about just mere human, the greatest mere human who ever walked the earth was got to be Moses. No one has had connections with Hashem greater than Moses. In fact, this is why the scripture says there will never be a prophet in Israel greater than Moses. He is the number one. He is the redeemer here in our story. And as great as Moses was, he was not able to save us. So, 
Let's put two and two together and let's get four. Okay? The greatest human being to ever live, to have the greatest experience one's ever had. What other human being, my friends, has spent so much time in Shemayim with Hashem walking around Shemayim? Like 40 days, three times. Who has done that? No one. Three times, 40 days on a mountain. Okay? Um, walking around Shemaim, he's not, it's not like he's sitting on the top of a rock on the top of a mountain surrounded by uh, smoky clouds. No, that would be secondhand smoke inhalation. It'd be bad for him. He actually walks into Shemaim and gets to be, gets shown everything. Who has ever done that but Moses? So he's the greatest man to ever live. He's the greatest prophet to ever live. There will never be a prophet. Listen, pay attention, please. There will never be a prophet a.k.a. a human being greater than Moses, ever. And yet we're waiting on the Mashiach, who's supposed to be a human being, to save us. But in fact, Moses was the greatest, and he couldn't save us. Starting to click now, isn't it? Now listen. It says, on Mount Sinai, Moses was in an exalted state, experiencing a dialogue with Hashem. Rashi comments that first Moses heard the commandments directly from Hashem, then Hashem... And he reviewed them together. Understandably, after Moses heard the statutes and laws described in Sidra Mishpatim, he was reluctant to leave those exquisite heights where he was welcomed like a bridegroom under the canopy. So Moses tarried there and he preferred to continue learning the halacha from Hashem rather than rejoining the ordinary world of men and their petty concerns. It pained him to go down and he only resigned himself to do so when Hashem says, Lek red, go descend. So listen to this. This delay by Moses was indirectly responsible for the tragic sin of the golden calf because the people became confused by his failure to appear when he was expected. So not only was a human being, the greatest of all human beings, not able to save us, according to the insights here, his error, well-intentioned, and trust me, I would be just like him. I Once I, I got to sit at Hashem's feet, I ain't error leaving. But the greatest of all human beings... Not only was he not able to save us, he actually contributed, at least indirectly, to our downfall. What's the moral of the story? This is why we need a divine Messiah. End of our Aliyah today. Thank you so much for joining me. Hag Samak Poim. Have a beautiful day, a joyful day. Whew. Be refreshed, be glorified, be uplifted, and let us prepare our hearts for Passover beginning even now. Hag Sumek, we'll see everybody tomorrow for the uh, fourth Aliyah, Bezrat Hashem. Shalom, shalom.